and you're live. Good man. Hey y'all. Uh, I'm on the tail end of a cold, so I'm not going to shake any hands or do any side hugs today. In fact, I'll probably pull back just a little bit. But uh, I've already gone through the stage of losing my voice and regaining it, so I think we're in the clear, but you just don't want to be in the spit row, you know, the splash zone. Uh, Trey, tough day yesterday. Not as bad as Arkansas, though. That's true. That's true. Things are, could be worse. Uh, all right, let's jump in. We're talking about today. Let's see if my clicker works. <clears throat> it was in my bag on uh, on for the last uh, week, so we'll see if it works. All right. Look at that. Uh, so we're, we're continuing this series today on the power of Jesus' names. We're talking about Alpha and Omega. So let's look at these two passages. I should have, in, in retrospect this morning, I should have put these in the opposite order chronologically, but I didn't. It is what it is. And... Um, you know that phrase, it is what it is? I thought that was a really recent <laughs> phrase. I was reading C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, this last week in preparation for a class, and actually I found two great quotes I'll read to you today. And C.S. Lewis has a line, the whole sentence is, it is what it is. <laughs> so that was, that was in World War II. So it's, it at least dates back to then. All right, so let's look at the bottom one first. This is God speaking. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he... I am the first and the last. <clears throat> and then this is Jesus in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So there is a definite uh, correlation between the Alpha and the Omega, as Tony Evans is going to explore here in a second, and the idea of the first and the last. When we think about those terms, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, we tend to think about God the Father. But Jesus, of course, in Revelation 22, is applying those terms to himself. And so I thought just to begin, we might discuss for a second, before we watch the video, as, as you think about those, those, two, oh, those two ideas, Alpha and Omega and First and Last, and you think about those words often attached to God the Father, okay, what difference does it make that Jesus applies those words to himself in Revelation 22? Or what does that mean for us? What does it reveal to you about Jesus or change about your life? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious as you think about that. Just brainstorm for a minute, and then you can talk to your neighbor about it. So brainstorm for a minute about it, and you'll talk to your neighbor. He's going to define it in a second, but I'm just curious what you're thinking beforehand. All right, why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them what profound thing you've thought of. It is. This is, yeah, look at that. <coughs> trendy, super trendy. <coughs> All right, did anybody's uh, neighbor say anything Im impressive no. or, or memorable? <laughs> you had to throw under the bus to return the favor from earlier. Uh, anybody's neighbor say anything worth sharing? Christina. 
What did Christina share, Kathy? I'm not smart enough to say. <laughs> Do you want to share it, Christina? No. <laughs> I said it, it just made me think that if God is first and last and Jesus is first and last, then God is Jesus according to the transitive properties. Okay, yeah, like an equation, right? If A equals B and B equals C, A okay. equals C, yeah. That's as much math. Yeah, okay, I get it, yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? And he was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Yeah, that's great. Good thoughts there. All right, well, let's jump in and see what Tony Evans has to say. Oh, sorry, y'all. I'm going to have to start this. He's real good. All right, a couple of reflections. I've got, I've been thinking about this all week, and so I've just, I've come up with maybe five or six reflections on what it might mean that Jesus is Alpha and Omega for us, and you might have some additional ones you'd add add to my list. So uh, let's see how we're doing. There we go. We're good. So I'll just, I'll just go through them here. All right, first, um, let me summarize. These are two great lines that he, he mentioned in, a, in relation to Jesus being the Alpha and Omega. He says this, God is the sum total of everything in between, so from Alpha to Omega, the ends of the alphabet. Jesus is the sum total of all the manifestation, communication, and revelation of God. He's declaring that he himself is the complete knowledge base of all life, that he is the entirety of all information, he is the answer to all questions, he is the sufficiency of all communication, he is the sum total of all that can be totaled, he said. All right, so uh, well, let's, let's talk about the implications of Jesus being Alpha and Omega. Okay, the first one I'm going to call signposts. And um, so... Christina mentioned math earlier, so and I, I love Tony Evans' language about, about Jesus being the sum total. So you think about like, uh, like a math equation. So um, in the number nine are the numbers five and four, okay? And so I think one way to think about Jesus being the alpha and omega, so if Jesus is the sum of all the equations, that everything we see in life is going to be pointing to this greater sum total that is God. You still with me? Okay. That, that we might call the numbers five, numbers four, or three and six, or seven and two, whatever numbers we're talking about. We might call those signposts or, or elements of an equation that are pointing to something larger. So whenever we look at the world around us, an attentive observer is looking for God. Okay. If God's the sum total of all things, then everything we, sh we see should be pointing us to God. You with me on that? All right, so let me read you a great quote from C.S. Lewis, okay, about this. A statue has the shape of a man, but it is not alive. In the same way, man has, in a sense I'm going to explain, the shape or likeness of God, but he's not got the kind of life that God has. Okay, so a man is, or a woman is a signpost to God, but is not... God himself. You with me? You following? Right? Okay, the, we have a life in us which points to the life that's in God, but it's a, it's a different kind, okay? It points in that direction, but it's different. He says this. 
Everything God has made has some likeness to himself. Space is like him in its hugeness. Not that the greatness of space is the same kind as the greatness of God, but it's a sort of symbol of it or a translation of it into spiritual terms. Matter is like God in having energy, though, again, of course, physical energy is a different kind of thing from the living power of God. The vegetable world is like him because it's alive and he is the living God. But life, in its biological sense, is not the same as the life there is in God. It's only a kind or a symbol or a shadow of it. I love that language, a shadow of it. When we come to the animals, we find other kinds of resemblance in addition to biological life. The intense activity and fertility of the insects, for example, is a first dim resemblance to the unceasing activity and the creativeness of God. In the higher mammals, we get the beginning of instinctive affection. And that's not the same thing as love that exists in God, but it's like it, rather in the way that a picture drawn on a flat piece of paper can nevertheless be like a landscape. And when we come to a man, the highest of the animals, we get the completest resemblance to God, which we know of. And then he says this, there may be creatures in other worlds who are more like God than man, but we do not know about them. C.S. Lewis was fascinated by space and aliens. Man, Man not only lives, but loves and reasons. Biological life reaches its highest known level in him. But, 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 but what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God. Okay, so basically, you know, like what Lewis is doing is he's making this long equation. So you've got like space, you've got the biological world, you've got um, uh, animals, so you've got like plants, animals, and then you've got four humans. So humans might be closest to God in the resemblance of God. They might, all, but all those things in their own ways are pointing towards God. I should have used no, the number seven. Right. That's the, the holy number. To, the totally botched this whole, this whole. Okay, do you get what I'm saying? Do you, you see what Lewis is saying? Okay, if God, if, if God is the sum total of everything we see around us, what's, what that means is that everything we see around us is pointing in the direction of God. It is some element or dimension of God that if we were to add those things up, points us in the direction of what God is really like. Okay? So humans have a life, and that makes us sense that God has a life, but we, but we also sense even in that moment it must be greater than the life that we have. All right, you with me? Point one. Okay? <clears throat> Point two. Let's talk about uh, evangelism. If, God, if Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Or we might, we might talk about apologetics. So apologetics is how we defend our faith, how we explain what we believe. Often apologetics is a part of evangelism because we're going to explain what we believe to somebody who doesn't yet believe that. That's when apologetics will become evangelism. You with me? Okay. <clears throat> so here's my point. If Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, where should our evangelism or apologetics begin? So if we're going to have a conversation with somebody about faith, where's the starting point? Okay, yeah, I kind of set that one up. All right, all right, think with me about it like this. Okay, so, so let's say we've got Alpha and Omega over here. And um, it, I, it would probably help you all if we just did A to Z. This, this would be Omega, but we'll just do Z. All right, so we've got Alpha to Omega. Well, think about this. 
So if God is the first Alpha to Omega, or is Alpha and Omega, and Jesus is God, obviously, but we first associate that with God himself, God the Father. What this probably means is God, if God is the sum total of everything, that you and I are just really not capable of fully understanding God. Okay? I would say that our, our bandwidth for understanding is somewhere probably right here. Okay, you with me? So when we talk about, for instance, like the eternality of God, God lasting forever. I mean, have you ever sat up at night just thinking about that? Like, how does that, how does that work? How, how did he, you know, not start at some point? And how, how does he not end at some point? Or do you think about heaven and, you know, singing 10,000 angels on repeat for eons? And you just think, hopefully there's more songs than that, or that there's a stopping point to this, right? Have you ever thought about those things, right? Okay, mate, okay, just me. Cottonwood Church of Christ, we had, a, we had one rule when it came to worship. It was the only rule. And then I was at every other week, we sang 10,000 Angels, number 170. All right, that was the only rule. Or Mary would let me have it. All right. Um, okay, so I, I would say like the eternality of God exists in this space. It's, kind of, it's one of those things that we can think a lot about and we can try to understand that. But there is a degree to which we're never going to fully grasp that in this life. Okay. So what happens in Jesus is that this full extent of who God is becomes present in an understandable person and time in human existence. Okay. Um, okay. So Jesus is both. He's both Alpha and Omega. Okay. So Jesus is like the Cliff Notes version to an extent of God. All right. Remember Cliff Notes? I know y'all remember Cliff Notes. Y'all used them. Right, okay, so that, there's a sense in which that's what Jesus is. Okay, he, he is condis, condensing the essence of who God is more broadly into something that is a bit more understandable. Now, there's dimensions of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that are beyond our comprehension, but certainly, if you're thinking about evangelism and apologetics, what we often try to do is we, we start out here on the edges and we try to have a kind of a philosophical conversation about the existence of God. And then if we can convince you of the existence of God, we work our way backwards to Jesus or forwards, we might say. And so, okay, if I can convince you that there is a God or that God might be real, and I'm not opposed to this approach, I'm just saying that there's a degree to which that's a much harder sell, okay? Then if you were to start with Jesus and then work your ways out, okay, well, how do you think about the problem of evil in light of Jesus? Or how do you think about the eternality of God or the creation of the world in light of Jesus? But there's some, I mean, I, th I think it's a pretty, pretty sound argument that that's a better starting point for a lot of folks. Any questions about that? Comments on that? With, I mean, where do you think most people, do you, you think most people start with conversation of God, or they start, right? my assumption would be most people would start with a conversation of Jesus, but I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Maybe a conversation of ourselves or something. I find like most um, apologetics material starts with the conversation of God, the existence of God. Um, interestingly, C.S. Lewis started believing in God and two years later believed in Jesus. So I, I do think that trajectory does work. I just think it's a harder path to follow. I think this is how John explains it in John chapter 1. He starts with Jesus in the beginning with God. He goes through the entire history of the Old Testament in one chapter mm -hmm. and then moves forward mm -hmm. from there. That's great. That's right. Other thoughts on that?
Yeah. That's what they do. And I, I think it's effective. Yep. Um, I think it's something people can relate to. And it, and it obviously does point to the AMZ and out to the edges. And you have all kinds of conversations. But I think that that's an easier thing to talk about. Especially with like limited vocabulary. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, if that's even narrower, just given language. Yeah, yeah that's, the, I mean, just think about that. The difference between starting with reading the Gospel of Luke with somebody and starting with Genesis. You know, like how, how notable that difference would be. It's not that Genesis is bad. I'm all for Genesis. Okay. I'm just, if, if Jesus is indeed, so like Jesus himself says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, so he is this visible or understandable, intelligible representation of what is uh, beyond comprehension for us. So he is a good starting point. Any other thoughts on that before we move on? Okay, three. Uh, okay, so let me, let me remind you of his quote, he is declaring, Jesus, that he himself is the complete knowledge base of all life. He is the entirety of all information. He is the answer to all questions. He is the sufficiency of all communication. He is the sum total of all that can be totaled. Okay, so if, if, if Jesus being alpha to omega, the sum total of all things, sufficient for all things, what are the practices in our life in which we practice the sufficiency of God. Think about that. Okay, so like, what are the, when are the times in our life, if, if what Jesus says about himself is true, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm, I'm all sufficient, I'm everything. What are the moments in our life when we say, yes, that's right? When we find we're not sufficient for ourselves. Okay, yeah, explain that, Dave, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, but sometimes I'm overwhelmed and find out that uh, I can't solve a problem. Uh, I need something. Or I need a higher power to solve a problem. Yeah, that's good. That's good. What do you do in those moments? I, I uh, get, draw closer to somebody with higher power. Yeah. Okay. So fellowship with somebody, or are you are you talking about or prayer? A lot of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Probably prayer more than anything else. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what I was going to say. So, it, you know, if Jesus being Alpha, to, alpha and Omega, first and last, is, a, is a, a statement about his sufficiency, I think the times in our life when we practice the sufficiency of God are, are times when we worship, pray, fellowship, um, I mean, because to the point Dave is making, uh, you know, there comes this moment when you're, you may be forced into that. So you're, you know, Jesus take the wheel, those kind of moments, like where you're totally out of control. But the thing is, you practice for those moments. How? By worship and prayer and fellowship. Okay, those moments where we, we intentionally reach out to a higher power and in doing so what we are acknowledging is i am insufficient like you know these are um uh 
Uh, what's a good example of this? Okay, remember like the WWJD bracelets? Did you have one? Okay, everybody had one? Yeah, right. Anybody wear theirs as an anklet? Any anklet wearers in here? Oh, so lame, so lame. Um, okay, what, it, what, was the, what was the point of the WWJD brace? Okay, so it's, it's on your wrist and you reach out to grab something or to hit somebody or whatever you're gonna do. What do you do? You see the you see the bracelet, it's supposed to remind you to change course, to change your behavior. I, I think in, in some ways that's exactly what worship, prayer, and fellowship are, when they are disciplines, when they're part of our discipline life. Okay, when, when they're not emergent or emergency times, but you know, when they are the disciplines, what they do is they remind us, okay, like I can go about my day, a whole day, and not think about God once, and convince myself that I am sufficient, that I'm managing my life, that I've got things under control, Okay, but what these things do and they're a disciplined part of your lives is to remind you, no, somebody else is the Alpha and Omega, not you. So throughout my day, I stop. Throughout my week, I stop and I, I own, I am insufficient. So I raise my concerns to you, God. I, I draw close to other people for that um, benefit that comes from being with somebody who's drawn to a higher power. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so I think those are really important. They're a celebration of the Alpha and Omega of God. All right. Uh, I can think about my dad when it comes to this. So I think I've told this story maybe before, but uh, my dad was a minister for 30 years. And um, a lot of kids who grew up in ministry families are messed up, and um, which I'm so scared about with my own, my own kids. But um, uh, my dad, you know, part of the reason a lot of ministers' kids are messed up is because their, their parents are like up there in pu public doing things and then behind the scenes they're pretty lousy people but one of my strongest memories of my dad is every morning I, we had a uh, my bedroom was upstairs and there was this kind of overlook over the banister of the stairs downstairs to a recliner where there was a lamp I had to get up for school I don't know six o'clock and every morning when I got up I would walk towards the shower carrying my towel and I would look over the banister and my dad was in that recliner with his Bible open, reading it every single morning. Like, I, I cannot remember a morning where that happened. And so I was just so accustomed to looking over, there's dad down there. And I, I think about how formative that was for me, because what's that? That's dad being disciplined to pause and say, someone else is the Alpha and Omega. Okay. I'm a preacher, you know, I'm leading all these people, but I'm not, it's not about me, it's about somebody else. Can y'all think of anybody whose life reflects the sufficiency of God or Christ like that? one of our discussion questions. Does anybody come to mind for you? Oh, where'd he go? You know, wise, really spiritual people tend to pray before they do anything. And, you know, the, the phrase of the Lord willing, you know, you hear that sort of thing, but there's a difference in just saying it kind of colloquially saying because you believe it mm. uh, there's a few rare people in my life where they they say it because they really mean it you know yeah. they really think that's true yeah i don't know no names exactly are coming to mind but yeah just a few few really you know, there's five or six of them that i've grown up around sure sure i think what you're saying about making it a discipline though i think that's the because we can look to these people right and say like man how do they like how do they do this and if, i think most of us are honest and i'm honest I probably feel like in a lot of areas of my life that like I'm an imposter or I'm 
like I hope people don't f- find out that I'm pretending or you know because I'm like I don't feel like I'm enough right but I'm sure those people felt the same way at some point but they they practiced that discipline they got up every morning and, and did it and then over time they became it mm. that's good that's right so that speaks to number four I think so you know we might we might argue that number three is done kind of with a nod to God. So I'm stopping for God's sake to, to, to show God I believe he is sufficient. But there's also this dimension to which number three, the disciplines of worship, prayer, fellowship, study, are for my own sake in, in reforming my desires or my wants. Um, that's, let's, so let's look at these passages here. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and is in all. For in him we live and we move and have our being. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to, you have been brought to fullness. So I just think about uh, how our own desires play out in our lives. I think about like, um, like obsessive checking of Facebook Marketplace for whatever, it, but whether it's hunting gear or bike stuff or couches or for Lindsay, it's rugs. We went to the, to the grocery store the other day. We came out, we had this great time at the grocery and, and we're, we're bringing all the groceries to the car. And she's like, fair warning, there's two rugs in the trunk. <laughs> so she just like, okay, do you get, okay. They're good rugs. There, she got good deals on those rugs. But do you understand okay, how, how we think about our desires and how our worship and prayer, and our fellowship, also have the potential to form our own desires so that what I want is less of what this world's offering and more of, of God. If, if indeed Jesus is sufficient, I want him most of all. Okay, last thing I want to talk about, uh, he talks about, and this, this connects to desires once, if Jesus is first and last, it's also a comment about his priority that he is above all things. He's first in that sense as well. Uh, okay, these, these last two lines, I'm going to read a quote from from uh, C.S. Lewis to finish. All right, if Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, Evans points us to Hebrews 12, 2, where we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith or completer of our faith. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember that? When we study that in the prison, the Sermon on the Mount, the prison, that's always the hardest line that we talk about in the prison. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then this here in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the last, and there's probably a lot of other things we could say about Jesus being the Alpha and Omega, but this last point is that his being first and last is also a commentary on what he's going to do in your life. He's going to bring you from the start to completion. He's trying to do something in you. He's trying to perfect you to prepare you for eternity. So C.S. Lewis talks about that in uh, Mere Christianity. We'll end with this great quote. Uh, He says, when Jesus says to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and then this is Lewis's quote, he meant the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I'll give you nothing less. Let me explain. When I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something, and it would deaden the pain for the night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew that she would take me to the dentist next morning. And I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. 
And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you give them an inch, they take an L, he says. <clears throat> now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like those dentists. If you give him an inch, he'll take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin which they are ashamed of. He gives a couple examples. Or which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, he'll cure it all right, but he won't stop there. That may be all you ask, but if, once you call him in, he'll give you the full treatment. That's why he warned people not to, he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I'll make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, this is what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my Father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet, this is the other and equally important side of it. This helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection will also be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. Isn't that awesome? So his delight in you is not based on where you are on his scale of perfection, but his purpose for you is to complete you, to make you perfect. Okay. That's all I've got. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginner and the completer. All right, let's stop there. Gotcha. Feel like dismissing us? I can, yeah, sure. Yeah.